Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Show me the magic Can I take you out to the picture? Well, I hope you'll come and see me in the movies What a scene Of your Hollywood song Hello, and welcome to the Beatles Films Podcast. I'm Matt Looker. I'm Ed Williamson. We're both professional film writers and Fab Four fans, and each week we discuss a different movie about, starring, or inspired by the Beatles. And this week we're marking the end of our third season with another two-part deep dive into an actual, real-life, bona fide, proper Beatles film starring the actual Beatles. Although not really properly, at least not until the end, because this episode's film is on 1968's Yellow Submarine, a movie that Wikipedia describes as an animated jukebox musical fantasy comedy adventure film, which probably just about covers it, although it leaves out surreal, psychedelic, and as mad as a box of marmalade skies. Upon release, it fulfilled the Beatles' contractual obligation with United Artists for three movies after A Hard Day's Night and Help. And while it didn't set the box office alight, it quickly garnered a huge cult following and has since been cited as a huge influence on modern-day filmmakers and animators. But how does it fare today? Is it just for kids? Just for Beatles fans? Just for kid Beatles fans? Or is it one of the earliest forms of mainstream pop art pushing the boundaries of the medium at the same time as expanding the limits of your own imagination? We're not going to be blue meanies about this. It's pretty great, isn't it? It is pretty great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I really remember um, one of my fond... I'm going to say fondest. Uh, I don't have many fond memories of uh, the first uh, COVID-19 lockdown in uh, 2020, but... um, on uh i had to look this up actually it was on it was on the 25th of april 2020 so here in the uk we were about a month into our first uh proper lockdown proper you can only go outside for an hour every day if that lockdown and um 
it was announced on social media that there was going to be a screening of Yellow Submarine. It was going to be, they were going to do a YouTube live stream of it. And it was on 25th of April. Um, and I read, I was really looking forward to it because, you know, like you remember that time, like just anything that, that cut through the boredom, anything that made Absolutely. your day even slightly yeah. different, you really, really looked forward to, you know, so I did for days. And then when it happened, it was, I remember it being like quite a nice sunny day and it felt quite joyous. It felt communal. Um, I remember sort of seeing, I will never, ever w- look at comments on a live YouTube stream. I mean, why would you, you know, yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, that way madness lies. But, uh, but just, it, it just really struck me that like, everyone watching it was having a sort of joyous communal experience. I th- and I thought, of course, it all makes sense. The blue meanies are the virus and <laughs> love is the cure and the Beatles are the, I don't know, the syringe. Um, <laughs> and, and yes, it makes sense. It all fits. And I, I just, I thought, as I often do, that maybe the Beatles are the greatest unifying cultural force that the human race has. So yeah, it's pretty good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, it, it's interesting. I mean, I I I wish I had uh, been a part of that. That sounds lovely. Uh, my experience of Yellow Submarine is is watching it as a kid at, at that time in the eighties when every now and again it was one of those films that might be shown on one of the one of the four channels we had back in those days. <laughs> uh, and I remember kind of watching it, knowing that my parents were Beatles fans, and therefore it should hold some kind of significance. But just thinking it was a bit weird mm. in 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 the same way that sometimes things that I felt were quite old and dated to me as a seven year old kid or however old I was, um, you know, felt. I deliberately haven't watched it again until now. So that's a couple of episodes. I, I don't mean I deliberately haven't watched it since I was seven, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> knowing full well that one day I might be a co-host on the Bob Keatles <laughs> podcast. Um, but uh, when it came up, I you know I wanted to revisit it, and I, I deliberately haven't until now, just so I could be fresh with uh, with brand new opinions. Uh, for yeah. this. Um But uh, but yeah, it's an interesting watch because I I think that it, it's it's a strange thing to think about this film potentially being for kids yeah and as a kid i didn't it didn't really gel with me as a beatles fan and as a uh as someone who considers himself knowledgeable about films and writes about films i felt like i was really able to appreciate what works in, in the movie now yeah i don't know how you feel in, in, in answering that question about who is this film for when this was released do we think it was for a younger audience or was it aimed at the uh, young adult Beatles fan demographic? I think it was aimed at the young adult Beatles fans demographic to the extent it was aimed at anyone at all. I mean, so when we spoke about Magical Mystery Tour, which was, of course, their last sort of film project um, that they'd done at the end of 1967, we spoke a bit about how they didn't particularly seem to be aiming things at an audience particularly anymore. They seemed to be if not deliberately trying to alienate them, then at least being prepared to alienate them. I think this seems to have come about much more because the the filmmakers wanted to do it and the Beatles said, yeah, sure, go ahead, <laughs> um, and then pretty much ignored them. And then at the end watched it and said, hey, this is really good. I like this. Uh, can we record a little bit to go at the end? Fine, yeah, done. And then like three weeks later, sold it off to Rishikesh and forgot about it. 
Um, <laughs> but but, um, but it, so it, I think it's one of those things that by accident has been one of the main things that has preserved their longevity for as long as it has in that it is probably one of the main ways that children get into the Beatles as you did I never watched it as a kid actually it was never on tv or at least I never saw it on tv and I think I probably would have wanted to buy it on VHS and couldn't um so I don't think I saw it until I was late teens early 20s something like that but lots and lots of people particularly in America it seems like have uh, that experience of having watched it. It was on the TV a lot in the 70s and the 80s. I think in America, it seems to have been on like a big sort of holiday film, like sort of Memorial Day weekend or or whatever it is. It would sort of always be on TV and lots of people seem to have that memory. Um, and so I think there's lots of people who grew up watching it and maybe their first experience of the Beatles was as a child watching them in a cartoon and the songs are sort of quite um, accessible in that sense. And so I think, like, quite by accident, um, you know, like these days, these big multimedia conglomerates like like Disney will sort of have these specific marketing strategies of, so, you know, like Disney Plus, the streaming service, good example. So on that, if you if you have kids, there's stuff on there for your kids. If you're an adult, there's like, there's, you know, there's stuff on there and things like um, the Star Wars and Marvel things are kind of aimed at both mm-hmm. both audiences. And so they're like quite quite cannily have like the same product that can be marketed to two demographics at the same time. Yellow Submarine is that product, but completely by accident. Mm. Like no one was trying to come up with a marketing strategy that said, "Oh, this will this will keep kids watching it for years and years and years," because nobody was even thinking in those terms, you know. Yeah, it's it's funny, isn't it? Because I I I still I guess struggle a little bit with the idea of kids watching this film and, and really engaging with it yeah. because it's we talk a lot about some of the the uh, the films that we cover in this podcast as as movies being a product of their time and this does feel like that right yeah. like this is very much a snapshot of a particular artistic movement and creative revolution if you will um and it, and it kind of encapsulates that uh, quite neatly those things aren't necessarily what is uh, conducive for a good viewing experience for a child yeah, yeah. but I think what does happen uh, in this movie and watching it is there is so much stuff happening on the screen. I, I, I was watching this being like, oh, this is, you know, obviously it's a story. It's a weird story. And the the very first note I made on my phone while I was watching this film is, well, this animation is a bit freaky deaky, isn't it? <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's the uh, whole podcast. Really, isn't it? Like, you know, what more do you need? <laughs> exactly, yeah. Revered film writer here. Um, I, I kind of felt like, well, what, what is in it for kids? And actually, I think what's in it is it, it plays to sort of your it plays to like shorter attention spans quite well i think because there is so much happening on screen it's just filled with imagination Mm. like filled to the brim and beyond of of weird things happening with sharp jaws chests and you know big powerful gloves in the sky flying around and laughing at people Mm. and you know all those kind of things and and yeah i can imagine kids watching that and then want to watch it again and and because it's you're, you're seeing a thousand different routes into a, an untapped part of your imagination mm. every single time you watch it that's very appealing to a child isn't it yeah right. like that that whole idea of every because i suppose you know you, you you're a man with two young children i suppose there are certain films that you have watched over and over again oh, yeah. to accommodate Absolutely. them you know? oh yeah yeah oh my god yeah 
for Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, you know. Yeah. But, but, <laughs> yeah, um, but yeah, but I mean, and a lot of the a lot of the films that um, that they will watch will be things like Pixar movies. Mm-hmm. But I, I I don't think that my young kids would watch Yellow Submarine and a root for the Beatles to save today, mm. like b understand the the menace or the peril that the Blue Minis present. Yeah understand any of the sequences that happen throughout the film in terms of going through the sea of time and all the 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 the, the sea of holes and and all of those um parts of the, the movie but i do think they'll like the music and i think that they will love this weird and wonderful rainbow coming out of top hats mm. you know the, these sequences of uh animated countdowns for example and every 30 seconds there's a new thing that I think would capture their imaginations and be like oh that's something I've never seen or thought of or even imagined was possible to to witness before yeah 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 but yeah and I think yeah so you can imagine that the uh, it makes it sort of more rewatchable you see you see you see and discover different stuff just by looking at a different bit of the screen every time you watch it Um, so I think um, that like you're right that it's sort of representative of the psychedelic era but I, I don't think it's it, it, it's not a coincidence necessarily that children can appreciate that. I think there's a lot of a, a lot of psychedelia, the, psych, the psychedelic movement, was to do with being childlike or accepting the childlike part of yourself. You think of uh, songs like "See Emily Play" and things like that, which is sort of based, feel like they're sort of based around nursery rhymes. You know, there's a kind of simplicity to it, which can sound sort of quite eerie in one context. But I, I think that. If if you take like a massive sort of psychedelic wig out, that it's all you know, like like the doors completely freaking out, then no, that your, your kids are probably not going to go for it all that much. <laughs> uh, but the the sort of more playful elements of it, you can completely see how a child would appreciate. You know. Yeah, of course. Yeah, and and I think that the other thing I have found again with two young children is the type of film that is guaranteed to keep their attention more than any other is a film that has musical numbers in. Yeah, and it's. It's interesting that this film is presented as a as a musical, because that's not really we talked before about when we covered Help in our um, two parter at the end of our first season about how songs were uh, became part of the plot in an almost contrived way. Yeah, you know there was a story, and then every now and again the band would stop and play a song. Mm. Whereas these are animated sequences designed around the songs. Um, and in and each song has kind of like its own section within the film. Yeah. And in in that way, it feels like it's a you know the term musical jukebox, as Wikipedia very rightly points out, um, uh, feels like it's a no brainer for the Beatles to have done something like that. But actually, this is the first time we see anything like that, and possibly the only other Beatles musical jukebox that exists outside of across the universe which we've again covered in a previous episode yeah i think yeah yellow submarine is the beatles only musical yeah so to draw that distinction like when we talk about a musical we're talking about a film in which the characters break into song and that is part of the narrative if you like so there are uh, problems they come across that are solved through song people have conversations in, in a way through song it's not it's not that they're trying to make out that the exact words being sung are being said, um, but it moves the plot along. So Help is not a musical. Help is a film about uh, the Beatles who are a band 
and during the film they perform songs because they are a band mm. and and that's their job yes. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um and uh so it's it, it's not a musical in that sense everyone in the film is aware that that they are playing songs and they watch them play the songs and then that's the end of the song and then they get on with the film like <laughs> <laughs> yes. the, the uh, but no yellow submarine is is a, a musical in the in sort of truer sense of the word and it's built around the songs for sure which it's kind of interesting given that the songs that the beatles presented for it were kind of uh, off cuts really they were mm, sort of stuff yeah. they'd recorded for sergeant pepper and b-sides and things like that yeah. maybe they certainly i, I don't th- mm. well like hey bulldog was a song i think that came about because they had to go into the studio to record it was a sort of music video for lady madonna which i guess would have been shortly before they went to rishikesh because lady madonna was released i think while they were in rishikesh so just so they could be filmed in the studio uh to provide some you know like a, a video for it while they were there they thought, well, we like we've got half a song here. Let's turn it into a song, and they finished off and recorded "Hey Bulldog" in that. And so you can, there's now a YouTube video where you can go and watch, and it's all been synced up, and you can see they are actually singing singing that song. Yeah. But whether they were doing that specifically for the film, I don't know. I just, uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, I I guess my impression from what I've read up about the film is that's not the case. It was, what have you got that you can offer us? Uh, yeah. I think there was a contractual obligation for them to present four songs that hadn't been released yeah so those four songs are kind of with me only a northern song yep hey bulldog hey bulldog it's all too much and all together now yep yeah only a northern song was originally recorded for sergeant pepper mm-hmm. it was what i think um again this is what i read up but uh it was one of the first songs i think they started to record no one really liked it <laughs> sorry george <laughs> yeah <laughs> And uh, I read somewhere, I think it was, it, it might have come from George Martin, uh, but I read somewhere that they were trying to record the song. They didn't really get on board with recording the song, didn't really like it very much. And it was when George Harrison presented Within Without You that there were huge sighs of relief around. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And interestingly, um, I think when they finished mixing Sgt. Pepper, they then went back to that original recording and finished off uh, Only Northern Song. And I think there's in some kind of extract, Mark Lewison has said uh, that it showed like a almost like a voracious appetite to get back to recording again, like even having completed an album mm-hmm. and through to a final mix to then be like, let's go back to that other one that we started and didn't like and finish it off. Yeah, you know, yeah just yeah. this this idea that they just were overflowing with creativity. Yeah, uh, and they just wanted to get back on the horse again straight away. seems to be conflicting opinions about only a northern song yeah what do you think of it it was so it was one i sort of d- discovered quite late uh because of like not seeing the film and it's also not one of the al- yellow submarine the soundtrack album is not one of the albums that you the cds that you go out and buy first when you're a teenager yeah you know it's probably the one you get last whether i actually ever even bought the cd i can't remember yeah, so I think yeah, those that and it's all too much were songs that I sort of uh, filed under like psychedelia brackets general. Uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. and yeah, they weren't favourites of mine. I like them a lot more now. I like the fact that it's deliberately discordant in places mm. where it talks about the chords going wrong and they kind of do go wrong. You know? I think I, I agree with you. Only a northern song. I kind of always had a bit of a uh, a problem with because. You know, when you start writing a song 
about the song that you're writing mm. feels a little bit GCSE music. You know, when you're, <laughs> you know, yeah. like, I'm going to start, I'm going to try and come up with a really clever, creative idea that no one's come up with before. Yeah. It also, it, it does speak of that problematic reputation George has for just being a bit of a moany old git, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, I kind of file, you file it under Psychedelic General, I kind of file it under, he's not he's not getting enough money again. Like, a lot right, of tax right, man. Right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, which is absolutely, of course, 100% <laughs> okay and, and understandable. Yeah, 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 of course. But it's, it's a song, a bit like Taxman. Taxman, for me, as a brilliant song as it is, I listen to that and I feel like I'm listening to someone with a massive chip on their shoulder. Yeah. And I think that's that's how I that's my listening experience of only Northern Song as well. It feels mm. like someone who is who's complaining in song form. <laughs> um, however, what I've come to appreciate about the song is lyrically towards the end, um, it, he kind of calls into question, you know, it, 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 this idea of um, uh, it doesn't matter what chords I play; it's only a Northern Song because mm. he's he's basically saying doesn't matter what I do, Northern Song own the rights. None of my input really matters. But lyrically towards the end of the song, uh, he almost sort of starts to turn out into a bit more of an existential idea. You know, mm. like, who am I? Where am I? Like, mm. and I kind of, you, you could kind of put that in the same category as Nowhere Man in terms of that's actually some quite mature thinking that has gone into some of the lyrics there. So I kind of uh, can appreciate that actually there's some maturity there as well as this relatively childish tantrum like <laughs> approach to the song that you know initiated it yeah yeah it's, it's such a wonderful mass of contradictions george i mean as, <laughs> as, as john was but that I, you know i can never get over just just how funny it is the idea of getting like really into sort of uh, like indian spiritual practices and like you know this whole thing was like oh, i'm I, i'm on my way to a higher plane and I am uh, divesting myself of this material realm. Also, I'm going to write a song about the publishing company that my two friends have set up to publish their songs because I don't get as much money as them. Exactly, yeah. It's just so brilliantly petulant. <laughs> and, like the t- the two things just don't marry up at all, yeah, yeah. you know. But it's the same as like, you know, b- it being into all that and also really into Formula One. Like they just don't seem to yeah. go together, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it's great. That's what I love about him. You know? I like the idea that having gone on the true path of enlightenment at the end of that is just him getting more than 0.8 <laughs> like, percent that's yeah. that to him is what is the ultimate goal yeah. it's obviously very unfair i do also think by the way that as much as uh, it annoys me a little bit that he's singing about uh you know these are the wrong chords i'm playing and um i do think actually there's a real talent in creating a song that is in tune and in key and a recognizable melody over music that sounds discordant that's not easy to do yeah you know like anyone can go and bash out four chords that sound horrible together (laughs) but like he's managed to make it sound tuneful and out of tune at the same time yeah i think is you know it's to his credit yeah where do we stand on all together now i think i probably read revolution in the head before i heard all together now and um I think Ian MacDonald and Revolution in the Head, I think, describes it as trite enough to have been chanted on English football terraces for years or something like that. 
And then when I eventually heard the song, I thought, I've never heard this on a football terrace. Never heard anyone sing this on a football terrace. I wonder how many football terraces Ian McDonald went to. (laughs) (laughs) Right, exactly. But also it doesn't like, I mean, you can see the sort of chanting element and the repetitive element of it. It completely suited to football chanting, but it doesn't. But yeah, (laughs) but I've never heard it in that context. I mean, also like, you know, did Ian McDonald ever see that video of Liverpool fans singing She Loves You in 1964 where they all sing the high note at the same, at the same time. It's brilliant. Uh, it's, just, it's just joyous and communal. One of the things about the Beatles and in particular McCartney's songwriting is sort of understanding the power of big choruses. You know, so I mean, the songs of theirs and his that are sung on football terraces now include Hey Jude, they play that at Brentford before every game. I think uh, Nottingham Forest have got a habit of playing Mull of Kintyre and they, wow. cha- and they change, change the lyrics to be, to be to do with the city ground where they play. But there, there's a reason why it's, it's easy to do with those songs. And that's because they have an understanding of how communality works. You know, of, mm-hmm. of how a, a big chorus can kind of inculcate fellow feeling, I suppose. And so, yeah, all, all together now, like it's incredibly simple, and it is it's kind of like a, a nursery rhyme, really. Um, mm-hmm. And also, it's um, its lyrics are kind of slightly subverting the nursery rhyme, I suppose. And well, I mean, I mean, I say that, but I mean, it may just be that they are designed to uh, rhyme and not do much else, mm-hmm. like you know, chop the tree, look at me, that kind of thing. But the, 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 what was it? Yellow, green, brown, red, or whatever the colours are. Can yeah. I take my friend to bed? Um, which, which is like ever so slightly like, ooh, okay. you know, like, you know, there's, there's something ever so slightly, yeah. you know, rude or risque or suggestive in it, you know. Yeah. Again, it may have just been designed to rhyme and not, and not, yeah. not, uh, not much more than You'd that. You'd like to think that they wouldn't just go with the first rhyme that popped into their heads, but who knows? They were so prolific in this period that yeah. I am a bit of a sucker for. The fact that the all together now works on two levels, I just like that. I, I know it's basic, but like the the idea of um, Paul singing all together now is like a rousing uh, call to accompany him in the singing the song itself, but also as a calling out of the unifying experience of everyone being you know, together doing that. Yeah, I just yeah, I think that's I I, I you can imagine Paul thinking of that double meaning mm. and be like that's a good thing to write a song about yeah and then coming up with what is just a really simple big chorus repetitive catchy and it works that's yeah. what it's meant to be right it's like what a nice thing so you know it's in a similar kind of way to all you need is love yeah in, in, as an approach to a song it's like you've just got one core idea at the heart of this to create something that people will have stuck in their head for days afterwards and it works yeah absolutely and and the phrase altogether now is one that children understand yeah because they hear it when they sing together yeah, uh, yeah. you know in class or whatever it is That's true yeah you know everyone understands it it's easy by a weird coincidence about two days ago i heard like a sort of a, like a, quite a young east european child use the phrase altogether now um and i was like Okay, like like he was speaking. Where were you? I was. Uh, I was. Uh, I was. Uh, <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> Walk us through it. <laughs> I was. Uh, I was in a pub. I was having a drink of my own, and and uh, East European family came in. It was. Um, it was a couple and their child. And I'm going to say the kid was 
about eight or something like that. And they, and they spoke very good English. They were speaking English to, to each other. But English was uh, probably not this kid's first language. And he used the phrase all together now at some mm. point when he was talking to his parents, uh, like in the context of let's sing along. Mm. And I realized that, oh, this is a this is a phrase that's very, it's, it's just very well, like it makes sense to children. Like they will hear this. It is a universally understood command to let's all sing together. Yes. Like, but also, maybe he had a teacher that taught him English through Beatles lyrics. Yes, yeah. one who went on a road trip to uh, yeah. to meet John Lennon in Spain. Who knows? Call back to an episode a couple of, uh, couple of weeks ago. Okay. <laughs> let's uh, let's just very very uh, quickly cap off these songs and talk about the big hitter, Hey Bulldog. Yes. Uh, which so we we've had a conversation about this off podcast, if you can believe it. Um, sometimes we talk without being recorded. Sometimes and. Um, I remember saying to you that for some reason, Hey Bulldog seemed to enjoy a second life post the initial release of Yellow Submarine yeah. in sort of like late 90s, early 2000s or yeah. so, um, where suddenly it seemed to en- re-enter the public consciousness and everyone was like, oh, this is a banging Beatles song that everyone's forgotten existed. Mm. Um, and it felt like a sort of a rediscovered gem. Mm. Uh, and it was only through researching this film and I had no idea beforehand that I discovered that the song was actually cut from the US version of the film and was only put back in the film again when it was remastered for a re-release in 1999 right which coincides I think with that period yeah you know like so so in in my mind where suddenly I started hearing Hey Bulldog again, like everyone's saying, was saying, hey, there's a song that existed that sounds like the kind of music that's being released today and it's really good mm. by the Beatles. It probably was because of this re-release of this film and that's when bigger audiences started discovering it for them for the first time. Yeah, probably. Yeah, it, it feels like quite a 90s song in a way. Like it feels like quite a Britpop song. mm you know, it's it, there's a big riff to it. It's one of those riffs that's sort of based on uh, like bass notes. So you can imagine a band like like the Blue Tones or something. In the same way, it's that song Solomon bites the worm that's got that, yeah. that big dun, 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 that that riff. You can imagine in a similar context to that that like a Britpop band. Uh, so it's sort of picking that up. I think Teenage Fan Club did a cover of it at some point. Actually. Oh wow! Really? Seem, seem to remember. I could be wrong, but um, yeah, that is Hey Bulldogs, a song I was first introduced to because I had on a cassette the two uh, rock and roll albums, the compilation mm. albums, and it was on one of those. It was also that was also the first place I heard Taxman because I hadn't heard Revolver at that point, and I got to get you into my life as well. Oh. We're, we're on there, and I think that mix of Hey Bulldog was very different to the extent that when I heard later mixes, there was sort of the bit where the the riff is initially starts off with the piano and and is then overlaid by guitar and then by the bass. Mm. Um, So however it was mixed was not mixed in quite that, in quite that way. So that the the riff, particularly when it came back after the chorus was, it was nowhere near as strong. It didn't hit as hard. Mm. And then, it, when I heard sort of later mixes, the mix that they did on the Yellow Submarine song track, and th- which I think is probably the same mix that you hear on the Blu-ray that we watched, that slaps, as the young people say. <laughs> like uh, it's, um, yes, it does. Uh, but the but that, like I say, that layering of three instruments playing the same riff and then yeah. just being layered one on top of each other, it really, really goes for it. I love it. It's funny because it reminds me a little bit of 
early Beatles tracks, which were very much focused on a riff. You know, like you think of like Day Tripper and I Feel Fine. Yeah. You know, like the, the thing, when you're learning guitars, like some of the first guitar things you learn to play, yeah. like those kind of riffs, it reminds you of that. But then you also have this brilliant fun element that comes into the song later on where you have these voices coming in, in the background and obviously dogs barking. In the back. Yeah. And my favourite part in the whole song is just after the guitar solo where John comes back in and says, big man. And you have a voice going, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, like yeah. Answering him. It's just it's yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. But like, so you, you kind of had this mix of, oh, here's like a really riff focused song. Mm. The kind of song that they kind of stopped doing around that period because mm. riffs by nature are relatively simple. Yeah. So you had this sort of like simple approach to a song, which is all focused around one riff, but then they've also brought with it like the confidence of a band that can also just have fun in the studio while they're recording it. And that's what stands it apart from, from just being the kind of song that Teenage Band Club might play, for example. Yeah. 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 It's, it's so much fun. Like they're, they're just mucking about so much. Yeah. And all that. I think the bits at the end, <laughs> where I think it's just John and Paul uh, like in, in singing into the same microphone and just ad-libbing those shouts and hollers at the end. There's a bit where, again, like it was only with later mixes that I could hear it properly, where into that Paul shouts, don't ask me, man, I only have 10 children. Um, <laughs> and it just means nothing in context at all. Right? But he's, he's just mucking about and making stuff up, I think. Yeah. Uh, there was a bit in, I think maybe this was in McDonald's as well, where... That I read that book so much when I was a teenager, so like bits of this are, are just really imprinted on my brain, where he said that the lyric that John initially brought along was some kind of innocence is measured out in news. Right. And, and he says, um, McCartney wisely pretended to have misread it and said measured out in you. I mean, I, I mean, how can he possibly know that that's, <laughs> that's yeah, how that happened? That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's an odd, odd thing to say. But I mean... To be perfectly honest, uh, it, it wouldn't have made that much difference. I don't think you know. No, no, the, the whole thing is a it is nonsensical. Have, have you heard like there is the demo of John just playing the "You Can Talk to Me" bit on a piano, and it's quite slow. No, I haven't heard that. I think. Yeah, and and he's just and, and he's just got the chords and the little descending bit, and that's that's all he's got basically. Yeah, yeah. And I think the rest of it was all kind of figured out in the studio. I love the um, the uh, the idea of it being fun and just having fun of it as well because that reminds me that I'd read something about only a northern song about how Paul had said that his dad used to have a trumpet and he was like I and he says that he could never play a trumpet but he's going to have fun with one on this song because it was that kind of song that allowed him the freedom to do that yeah so you just have this sort of mad like trumpet wailing at the end of that song because yeah. Paul's like, well, this, this, he's, I think he describes the song as being quite cheeky. Mm. So it's like, it, it allowed him that freedom to just mess about on a trumpet. Yeah. As, as you do when you're Paul McCartney. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, and you've been given someone else's song. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. 
It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. So now that we've actually covered off the, the, the songs and the album, yeah. let's talk about the plot, mm. uh, the story, what? Little or loads of it there is. I'm still not entirely <laughs> sure. <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. So I mean, let's let's go through it. So first of all, we have Pepperland mm-hmm. uh, that is being ambushed by Blue Meanies yep. who hate music. Yep. They encase the bandstand band in a blue globe to prevent them from playing music, and they yep. attack all of the residents of Pepperland with various arrows and flying gloves and sparks and lightning and, and stuff yeah. to turn them all into statues, drain the colour of Pepperland. But luckily, young Fred, or old Fred, as the Beatles later refer to him as, uh, is able to escape up a pyramid into a submarine, travel very, very far, all the way to the Mersey, in Liverpool, where he stumbles upon Ringo, meets the Beatles, convinces them to come back and save the residents of Pepperland from the Blue Meanies. Yep. Up until the point where they get to Pepperland, roughly how far into the film are we? <laughs> oh, about two thirds. Two. Okay. <laughs> like, and 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 then and then they just save the day. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, there, there's a there's a lot of a lot of journeying here. You can look at it one way in that they're journeying on the Yellow Submarine. The film's called Yellow Submarine. Um, in many ways, the real Yellow Submarine was the Yellow Submarine they met along the way. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> no, the um, the actual journey that they take to Pepperland, um, like in in narrative terms, you, you would expect it to take up less of the film because the idea is that there's um, to the extent there's conflict and resolution here. The conflict is that Pepperland has been taken over by the Blue Meanies. The Beatles, are the heroes, they need to go and rescue them. Um, so you would expect it to be more like the, them journeying to Pepperland is, is is like there's the odd obstacle to overcome to get there, but generally they'll get there. And then the main obstacles are actually defeating the Blue Meanies in Pepperland. It's not that so much. Um, it, it is uh, more that getting there in the first place through various seas and through various creatures is, is sort of where, where the challenge is for them. And then when they get to Pepperland, it's actually quite easy to, to defeat them. Yeah, I mean... Can I be so bold as to draw an unlikely comparison? Sure. But genuinely, one I was thinking of while watching the film was, um, it's a little bit like Homer's Odyssey, <laughs> <laughs> because that's it's a it's a quest film, isn't it? It's um, yeah. it's it's the it's the like you say the journey they go on. I, I don't know if I can quite draw too many parallels to that as a text. I don't know if jeremy hillary boob is supposed to be telemachus or <laughs> <laughs> the blue meanies the cyclops i have no idea but um but it feels like that it feels like it's a it's a journey story a quest story that is steeped in 
the the characters they meet along the way the uh the growth that happens along the, the along that journey in order to then get to the, the destination and, and and the pacing is different in those kinds of stories yeah you know, it is about the journey it is about the people they meet along the way maybe maybe it would make more sense if i instead of referring to homer's odyssey i referred to ulysses 2001 yeah of course yeah in, <laughs> yeah. in, in many ways the key text you know? <laughs> <laughs> the 80s cartoon series yes based on on the same source material but yeah it's you know it's similar it's the journey is the framework for what is a series of episodic encounters mm. and i think that's what the film ultimately is yeah the, um, them getting to pepperland and defeated blue Minis is kind of just the uh the conclusion of that journey it's yeah. not the usual rules of storytelling of like three acts and plot beats and things don't apply here yeah, yeah, and I think also that that you because there there's this obstacle for them to overcome or, or a villain for them to defeat. But as ever in lots of Beatles narrative films, um, as characters, the Beatles are sort of quite disconnected from the task they have at hand. You know, so in in Help, we spoke about how uh, their lives are at risk. Like literally, they are being pursued by a death cult, but they don't seem that bothered. They're just kind of having a laugh, really, which completely fits with the tone of that film and this is similar where fred turns up in liverpool with the yellow submarine and he sort of begs ringo for help and ringo is sort of quite dismissive of him in general yeah. um, and can't really be bothered um, well he actually says is um uh help i need somebody help and then ringo says be specific <laughs> which, <laughs> which yeah. I really generally made me laugh <laughs> yeah yeah exactly um and um uh, when he gets into their house and sort of meets them all, they're all so, so you know George in particular is, is is not very bothered and like you know there's the sh- first shot you see of George well, not the first shot but like uh, after he's you've seen him on the the top of the the mountain thing where he's sort of being introduced as the one who's into Indian stuff you know mm, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, that, yeah the spiritual that, one the yeah. spiritual one yeah um, and then he sort of drives along in the car and there, there's a look that George gives him that is just one of complete disdain where he is like completely dismissive. Uh, the fact that this guy is in trouble. Um, now, obviously this is, uh, and I'm sure this won't be the last time we say this, but like, this is an animation and in animations, you, you get away with much more. You're not expected to be entirely realistic. It would be stupid to expect that you were, that would misunderstand it. But as heroes, uh, they are quite detached from the whole thing. The, the idea of them having to expend any particular effort to uh, to overcome this problem is not really the point of it. It's not really part of it, you know. So it's, a di- I mean, there's a similar thing in Give My Regards to Broad Street, um, but that's really just the, the product of it not being very well written, to be, <laughs> yeah, yeah, know, to, yeah. to be honest. Like, you know, or, or, or the product of Paul McCartney not really being capable of uh, emoting when acting on his own, you know. Yeah, I, I think there's a, um, I think with Hard Day's Night and Help, you've got this element of the story is what happens around the Beatles because they're in their own bubble of fame. And that heightens all of the, the spectacle and the, the chaos uh, that happens around them. That that's not present in Kimara Castable Street. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> no, that is just Paul just being a bit sort of lackadaisical in his approach to a yes. massive dilemma. Yeah. Uh, what do you think of the characterization of the the Beatles uh, as individuals? Because I, I have a few points. <laughs> I don't know why Ringo's depressed when we first meet him. I don't know why he literally makes a joke about killing himself in the river. 
<laughs> he says, I'll jump in the Mersey, but it looks like it's going to rain or something like that. I know, but it looks like rain. Oh, it looks like rain. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, um, and, and and then you have, so like you said before, uh, I, I found it quite interesting, actually, that George was introduced to sitar music. Like, it felt like that was quite an early way to identify him. Like, this came out in 68. I guess yes. with and without you had been released at that point, but it just yeah. felt it was quite early for him to have that reputation as the spiritual one yes yeah that's what i thought and so the interesting thing is that this so i think the contract to do this they sort of agree that yes you can go ahead with this yellow submarine film is in the middle of 1967 so maybe just after the sergeant pepper release i think something like that uh, three weeks after, I think. Three weeks after. Yeah, I think so, right. yeah. The the animations were done using the the pictures of the Beatles from the uh, Sergeant Pepper launch party at Brian Epstein's house. Uh, some of which would have been taken by Linda McCartney, I'm sure. So that you know, that's why they're wearing the clothes they are in the thing. It, it, so it's really interesting. We talked earlier about this being a sort of snapshot in time, and like as ever with the Beatles' career. You could you take a snapshot of them and then you um, look away and look back again and they've moved on and they're doing something completely different and they've all and they've all grown beards or or whatever you know um, so it's kind of taking a snapshot of this psychedelic era but by 1968 by the time it's released they're they're not done with it you know what I mean but they have kind of moved on you know so so they're taking I mean one of the things about this film is it was done in eleven months which is a ridiculously short period for an animation to be made in. I think uh, Disney animations at that time were taking sort of roughly four years to produce. Mm. Getting one done in 11 months is crazy. If if they'd had to do this, if they'd had four years in which to do this, I mean, obviously the, the Beatles would have split up by the time they had released it. But <laughs> even if they hadn't, they would have moved on so much from well, the Beatles they were characterising in that. Yeah, you know? that's interesting. Because yeah, you could say 11 months is a ridiculously short period to, to make an animation, yeah. but it's a ridiculously long period in terms of Beatles history. Yes. Uh, so I've actually got a note here. So the film was agreed in June 1967, which is a few weeks after Sgt. Peppers was released, and it premiered in August 1968. So between June 1967 and August 1968, the band had recorded and had broadcast All You Need Is Love. They'd made the film and the album of Magical Mystery Tour. Brian Epstein died Mm -hmm. in August 1967. John met Yoko. Paul met Linda. Uh, The Apple Corporation was founded uh, and the group had made that trip to India to to meet the Maharishi uh, in February. And then they began the the early uh, beginnings of recording what eventually became the White Album. So yeah, so for all of that to happen at a time when an animation was being made based on their look promoting Sgt. Pepper's mm. <laughs> is, is actually quite problematic. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, the fact that by this point, um, like, so we we can sit and watch Yellow Submarine now, and as soon as George appears and it, it's set to the Indian music, we're like, ah, yep, George, he's mm. the he's the spiritual one. This characterizes him. But in 1968, when this was released. I suppose they'd been to India, but also when they started making this film, they hadn't been to India. So yeah, it's, yeah, you know, yeah, so, so maybe that wasn't, they didn't even have that to rely on. So basically they're basing this on, this guy has done Love You Too and Within You, Without You. Yeah. And that is it, it, enough of a specific thing about his personality to sort of serve as his characterization for this. You can see the sort of sad sack thing they've gone for with Ringo. Mm-hmm. 
that is kind of played upon in both A Hard Day's Night and Help to some degree. And A Hard Day's Night in particular, the bit where he's walking around on his own after like he's sort of run away from the rest of the band and he meets the kid and things like that. They're dealing with broad strokes in terms of character. Yeah. Right? So if you look at them, you know, the cute one, the quiet one, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. If you look at Ringo, you can take that kind of, that fact that he has a slightly deadpan sense of humour mm. and that he has that, as we've discussed in a previous episode, has that sort of uh, resting sad face. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. Um, So it's easy to sort of draw a character like that where he's a bit sort of down down on his luck, that mm. kind of thing. Yeah, you know? uh, yeah and the, um, the characterisation of Paul and John, it's less obvious. You kind of get the impression that Paul is a bit sort of pleased with himself. I, I think uh, Paul is, uh, when we first meet Paul, he's celebrating a classical concert is coming off stage he's holding a bunch of flowers that's it yeah and i guess there's a romanticized view of paul which i think is true at the time this idea of him being like the cute one yeah um the bit that i kind of struggled with was john and i think john is presented in this as as like the intellectual yes but intellectual in in what i kind of think of as being the wrong way not intellectual as a poet or as a philosopher but an intellectual who spouts Einstein's theory of relativity. Yeah, it yeah. doesn't feel like it's quite chiming with the the, the, the right sense of intellectual. No, that's uh, true. That, that John is normally associated with. Yeah, that's true. Uh, yeah, I wonder if he was thought of a little bit that way, especially because he'd written the two books by that point. Yeah, I suppose. I suppose he was the one who, in interviews, like people were aware, had a bit more of sort of li- literary bent to him. You know, mm-hmm. like having written the books, and I think he was—he he would certainly talk in interviews about things he'd read and things like that. You know, so I think, yeah, maybe it comes from that. Yeah, maybe it comes from that. You know, there, there's a there's something that one of the members of the crew said. I can't remember where I heard it, but they said that the way they're animated is that all four Beatles have very specific ways of walking, and you know, Ringo sort of trudges, and John kind of struts. I think you know. Um, so that that was deliberately done. So they weren't just kind of, you know, stop. It'd be quite easy just to animate them all just based on the same physicality with a different head on. Yeah, it makes sense, know? yeah. And um, yeah, but I think, you know, it's it's nice that things like this were, were thought about. Because um, mm. actually, I suppose like animation, I mean, animation has been around for, uh, you know, decades by this point, but perhaps it's sort of in its infancy in terms of, of presenting things like this to an adult audience. Yeah. And so perhaps making choices around characterization. Actually, no, I mean, to, to, to say that implies that there's no characterization in animation for children, which is rubbish. But um, but I, I suppose maybe um, making specific character choices like that. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's an, another example of a Beatles product where they could have got away with doing a lot less. Yeah. I was just thinking that, like, because I think that, You'd like to think that those creative choices that were made at that time is what has directly led to this film standing the test of time. Because I think some of the creative minds behind this film had worked on a previous Beatles TV show, yeah. which no one knows and no one remembers, right? Um, I, I think I think in America it's quite... It's, oh, is it it's quite, quite well okay. remembered. Yeah, I think the, the, the cartoon... I've never seen it, but I think the cartoon which was just called The Beatles, that was a sort of Saturday morning kids' cartoon yes. where they would have sort of knockabout romps. But the the look of Yellow Submarine is one of five instantly recognisable Beatles looks. Yes. You know, like that that design of them as characters 
is you know if you were to go through their entire career and try to like picture the Beatles at certain points the Yellow Submarine would be one of them yeah. even though it is a film that they actually had very little to do with yeah submitted their song off cuts mm. for use <laughs> and filmed like a you know couple of minutes um live action bit at the end of the film yeah but it is so recognizable as part of the Beatles career that that look that design element and the the overall look and feel of them animated as characters but also the obviously the yellow submarine look and shape yeah and you'd like to think that yeah some of those deliberate creative choices uh, early on is what has led to this having longevity yeah definitely yeah and i feel like uh the way that the accents are done so the uh, the Beatles did did not voice the characters themselves. There were actors doing it. And um, they are sort of exaggerated Scouse accents. Uh, in a couple of cases, in, with Ringo and Paul, they're, they're, they're sort of pretty good impersonations. The John and George ones are just sort of more generic Scouse. But I feel like the voices used in Yellow Submarine to depict how the Beatles talk has gone on to be the template for how people do the general Beatles impression. Yeah. You know, the sort of generic way of talking like this, you know, <laughs> the, the sort of drawl and, you know, uh, the, all that. Bits of it are taken from the way the Beatles speak. But I, I think in particular, there's a bit in it where they say, oh, they do though, don't they though? Yeah, they do, they do though, don't they? Though? And and that is, that's in like, like Harry Enfield and yeah, sons, the Scousers yeah, yeah, used to do that. And I, I think I actually... Yeah, I would have seen that Harry Enfield before I saw Yellow Submarine. (laughs) And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, that's where they got that from, you know. And that has just entered into the general vernacular of like, oh, this is how Liverpudlians talk. It's funny that um, you talk about it uh, as being like a a generalised version of that because um, one of the facts that comes out about this film, if you do any kind of digging at all, is that the guy who voiced George was actually arrested halfway through production of the film. The guy's name is Peter Batten. He voiced George for the first half of the film and then was arrested because he was discovered to be a deserter from the British Army of the Rhine in West Germany. Yeah. Um, so the, for the second half of the film, the guy who voices George is just the guy who voiced Ringo as well. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Paul Angelis who uh, also did the voice of the opening narrator and the chief Blue Meanie. But yeah, it was cast as Ringo. And was, he was probably just like, well, we'll just do the same voice for George. It's fine. It's all basically the same voice. Yeah, yeah. And Paul Angelis has another Beatles connection. His brother, Michael Angelis, took over the narration of Thomas the Tank Engine uh, after Ringo stopped doing it in the early 90s. I mean, they're all just using the same voice, aren't they? <laughs> <laughs> pretty, pretty much, pretty much. When, when's, when's our Thomas the Tank Engine episode? <laughs> Whenever we can watch the the six thousand episodes in time to <laughs> to really do it justice. Yeah. One of the things that I found really interesting, actually, about the uh, the film is that it introduces this idea of there being a deeper plot thread at play that isn't necessarily on the surface. And there's a reading of this film, which is that. The Beatles, even though they have been discovered by young Fred to help come to Pepperland and defeat the Blue Meanies, that actually not only have they been to Pepperland before, 
but were the originators of that land and that the residents there kind of all descend from the Beatles. Yeah. Bear with me. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So let me go walk through this. So first of all, when they travel to Pepperland, there is a moment in the film where they look out the window of the yellow submarine and they see an identical yellow submarine with identical Beatles in that. Yep. And they talk about how because they're traveling through the sea of time, that is them on a different timeline to the one they're currently on. Yeah. And then that's it. Never mentioned again. Yeah. Right? When they get to Pepperland, the Lord Major, who is has been trapped under a big pile of green apples, when he sees them for the first time, he sort of like touches their face and says, oh, you look just like the originals. Mm. And later on in the film, when they free the band from the bandstand, they are doubles for the Beatles. Yeah. So I think there's this kind of underlying idea that they have somehow initiated Pepperland themselves. I don't tell me am I am I am I approaching this from a too much of a sci-fi geek no, no, angle? No, uh, no. I, I think it's funny. Like in in describing that to me, you've reminded me of I think two episodes of Red Dwarf. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes, so there's, exactly. So there's the one you know, there's the episode of Red Dwarf where they find uh, like there's like a mirror image ship of them where like every, like is one ship where everything's good and the other where everything's yes, bad. Yeah, or yeah. maybe angels or may, and demons. Yeah, or maybe they uh, the one where they meet the sort of future echoes of themselves or yeah. whatever it is yeah future echoes it's called <laughs> yeah and there is the other one where uh also just the general concept where like uh, everyone is descended from uh, there's an entire species descended from cats because yeah. these cats have evolved over so basically yellow submarine very much in many ways like red dwarf yeah dave lister's from liverpool isn't he yeah. <laughs> it all Boys, fits by michael and paul's third brother <laughs> Anyway, sorry, uh, we've gone off topic a bit, but 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 yes. So I think yeah, it's uh, like there's a reading of it whereby I don't know. Like I I like the idea that there are alternative readings of it Hmm. because there always should be alternative readings of everything because what makes things interesting. Hmm. Like you know, like like, you know that thing when you're when you're a kid and you're doing Shakespeare at school and like the teacher says, "Oh, this is all the symbolism in this," and like and you turn to your mate and say, "Oh." symbolism I bet he didn't know any about this when he was when he was writing it you know yeah and Shakespeare um, no really yeah exactly you know um and which misses the point as like you know as teenage um literary appreciation often does (laughs) 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 because the the idea is not whether the author meant it there is still value in uh interpreting things in different ways I think, you know, so yeah, even something like Yellow Submarine, which is on the face of it, a, a sort of silly knockabout caper, can absolutely be be read in that way. I, it feels a little that. bit like you're placating me, but I think I'll take it. I mean, a bit, yeah, sure. I just, I, I do feel like there is a, in my mind, the, the Beatles are almost like Prometheus type figures um, <laughs> <laughs> for Pepperland. Um, I, I think that... That also plays out in the way that the story unfolds with them uh, having otherworldly abilities and powers in dealing with the Blue Meanies yeah. when they get there. Like, they aren't troubled by Blue Meanies. They don't panic. They don't, you know, as you said before, there's a disassociative quality to them as characters in the film. Yeah, uh, They know how to handle that situation. And at no point do they seem like they're in peril. Yeah. Um and I think 
as a result, the film presents them as being on a different level to the other characters that we see in the film, which are, I, I guess, more normal <laughs> you know yeah there's a there's a so i think that they're put on a little bit of a pedestal they and and you could argue that 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 pedestal gives them sort of the the veneer of this sort of like superhuman quality to them yeah uh, which absolutely plays into my theory of them as godlike uh characters originators yep. of the natives of pepperland yep go on <laughs> <laughs> yes and no, no I, I, uh, it reminds me uh, actually what you're saying of it, in Magical Mystery Tour, the sequence with the wizards where uh, mm. they, as accidental as that may have been, the wizards are these characters who are directing the narrative or, or, or observing the narrative in some way and, and like wanting to exert some kind of control over it, it'd be, it'd be that sort of benign or malign. But they, the, the Beatles sort of accidentally or the, or the wizards in Magical Mystery Tour uh, uh, are accidentally maybe portrayed as sort of divine figures almost mm. and yes you can see in i suppose you can see i would more equate them to sort of superheroes than which obviously it does suggest a sort of supernatural state but superheroes are perhaps a bit more grounded in reality or at least that's the way that that marvel movies will will play them now it's like even mm. if they're aliens like thor they will still like sit and you know and eat, eat shawarma with with a, you know that kind of thing. They're they're more grounded deliberately to sort of make them more real and more relatable and just sort of more fun as well. Um, so yeah, I think uh, that's yeah. I would probably draw more of a parallel with with superheroes than you know gods. Gods has gone a bit far. Well, I mean, have you seen Superman? They basically say that he is a god. Yeah, Thor is a god. Yeah, uh, I'd like to see either of those two characters played with a thick Scouse accent. Yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. No, but and and the, and my the the last my last stretch of, of this argument to give is, it, it seems to me that the Beatles saving the day in the way that they do, comes from their their nature, which is different to the other characters portrayed uh, on screen. Yeah. What we see on their journey to Pepperland is them frequently reaching out to other characters they meet, being kind, forming and forging friendships and relationships and building connections. And it's that sort of natural part of them as characters that helps them defeat the Blue Meanies. You know, it, it, it should have been obvious from the offset, but I did smile to myself when uh, John beats the glove by just taking off the G and then singing all you need is love yeah uh, and, and also right through to the end when chief blue meanie is defeated and they reach out to him and build a connection with him and, and change that whole narrative and that you know there is a again there's a reading of that which is almost like a religious teaching uh, of how you should conduct yourself as a person to sort of you know be better and to save the day and and to to win out yeah there's there's an inclusivity to it so mm. you know enemies aren't defeated so much as as just sort of uh persuaded to the cause yes yeah so it's, it's quite a casual cause uh for sure in terms of the way it's played but yes definitely um other than the bit where there's the sort of purple elephant guy and they all say how ugly he is uh which i thought was an odd misstep um, yeah, yeah i did as well but, yeah, but, 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 uh, but other than that but yeah you're right everyone they come into contact with they are sort of gradually bringing them on board with their ethos and it mm. is um peace and love as it always is. As it always is. Yeah. And uh, you know what I like about that as well is I think, you know, when we were talking about the 
uh, at the start of this episode and you were talking about um having watched this in lockdown yeah. like that 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 idea of uh building connections and and sort of this communal spirit that that comes with the Beatles as characters feels very much in keeping with your experience of watching this at that time yeah and i also like the fact that you know when we're talking about this film now more than 50 years later how relevant is it really to uh, audiences now it feels like it's extremely relevant for this film to have so much focus on unification and diversity yeah and that diversity is explored with the characters and with with those friendships that um the Beatles makes along the way but also in the huge range of styles of animation that is uh present in the film like this this is a a film that screams uh diversity in all aspects which is something that we'll probably go on to explore in part two of our discussion on Yellow Submarine. I hope you have enjoyed listening to this first part. Uh, please join us again next week for part two of our discussion. If you have enjoyed this episode, uh, why not leave us a five-star rating or a review on your podcast listening platform of choice? That would be much appreciated. And as always, you can reach us on all of the usual social media platforms at Beatles Films Pod. But otherwise, we'll see you again next week for Yellow Submarine Part 2. Until then, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.